This is Doug Green with What Really Matters Interviews, and today it is my pleasure to interview Ellie Briggs. Now, let me tell you about Ellie. She is a hiker. She likes, she lives in Colorado, and what sets her apart, uh, or what she's done that's amazing, is she's climbed all of Colorado's 58, 14,000 foot peaks, which are often called 14ers. And that's pretty good in itself, There, but there are 5,000 people that have done that. What sets her apart is she did it with her husky, her dog, which is a husky named Loki. And there are only three dogs that have ever accomplished that. And Loki is the most recent one. And just to give you a little bit more background on these peaks, some of these peaks are technical climbs. It's like, I, I, I looked at one of the pictures of the most recent one she climbed, Capitol. I was like, there's no freaking way I'm getting on that thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, there she is saddling, sort of straddling this knife ridge with her dog. So there's so many things to explore here. Um, Ellie, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So why don't you talk about this? Let's start off with the most recent peak you did. I understand that on Capitol, is it called Capitol Peak? Yes. Capitol, okay. Um, I understand that you, that was actually your second attempt on that peak. You had come there the year prior and a combination of weather and exposure and everything just kind of got you like, yeah, maybe we should come back to this. Or maybe you can talk about that and then also what it was like the second time when you came back. So what stopped you the first time and then what inspired you to keep going and you know, what challenges did you face the second time? Sure. Well, the first time that we attempted Capital was back in 2018 and it was the same same month, it was September. And I chose September on purpose because that tends to be one of the best months for having good weather. And on a peak like Capitol that is so technical and it is the hardest teener in Colorado, I wanted to have the conditions be as perfect as possible um, before we attempted anything. So when we went up that time, we had to hike in about six and a half miles to our sort of base camp area, which is Capitol Lake. And it sits right at the base of the peak itself. And we set up camp. I had my partner with me and, of course, Loki. And overnight, the weather sort of changed and the wind picked up. And we actually didn't sleep a wink because the wind was so incredibly strong. And after basically just having a a sleepless night, when our alarms went off, I think it was about 4 o'clock in the morning, partner and I just said, no, this this doesn't seem like a safe situation wind-wise. Because, especially going over something like the knife edge, where you really want to have it as much balance as possible. So we we didn't even make an attempt. We ended up just going back to bed and sleeping in and, and then calling it and hiking out the, the following morning. So that was a little disappointing, yeah. But then you came back? Yes, yeah. So yeah, it took a, a full year to, to get back to it. We had already climbed all of the other... 14ers back in 2018. It was going to be our last one back then too. So it took, yeah, another year to finally knock this one out. But when we came back that second time last fall, again, September, and this time we just got super lucky and the weather was absolutely perfect. Everything about that day was perfect. I had gone around to all the campsites 
for people that were going to be making attempts the next day and let them know, hey, I'm here. This is our, our final summit. I'm with my dog. This is our experience. If you're uncomfortable, you know, we can talk about staging our start times to make sure that we're not in the same area. Because, you know, hiking with a dog on a technical peak is, is somewhat nerve wracking to people that don't really know us or know our history or our expertise. So I just wanted to put their mind at ease. But then when we actually did go for the climb itself, everything just went as as smoothly as I ever could have hoped for. It was really the perfect day. So my understanding is the last 150 yards or something is the knife ridge to get to this summit? Not quite. So basically what you do, you have to go. So from the lake, you have to climb up to a ridge line and then hit go around the backside and sort of traverse for a while. And then you climb up another mountain called K2, which sits just directly adjacent to Capitol Peak proper. But between K2 and Capitol Peak is the knife edge. And that's a 150 feet wide, or excuse me, 150 feet long, so that you have to traverse that section. And then once you get across it, that's actually where like the real difficult climbing begins. And then, so that's a couple, a few more thousand feet, I, I believe, from the the end of the knife edge all the way to the summit. But really, basically, the knife edge is like where the, the hard climbing sort of begins, I would say. And what's the elevation where that begins? It's not quite 13. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's a little bit lower than that. So when Loki saw this knife ridge, which sounds like it was probably the most challenging of all the peaks you climbed, that area, that last part of Capitol? You know, in all honesty, I would say that there are there there have been other sections on different mountains that have been more difficult. Because I think what makes the knife edge so scary is the exposure, where on both sides, you just have this sheer drop off of over a thousand feet. And so it's more of a, a mental challenge more than anything. Physically, it's not difficult. The rock is extremely stable and you can sort of just like sort of inch your way, like straddling it across, or you can actually even just walk it if you have really good balance and and you're not too afraid. So it, it's not yeah. like a, a physical challenge, <laughs> but it, it is a mental challenge. But for him, we had practiced, we had done another peak that did have a, a shorter knife edge. So he had been in that sort of environment before and he was prepared for it. So how does he climb it? Does he just kind of straddle the knife bridge and sort of like his left legs are on the left side of the knife? He literally just walked right across it. I had brought a um, running belay setups that we had thought about potentially rigging up my partner and myself just in case because we wanted to make sure that we were prepared once we get up there for any sort of situation and if we needed to have him on belay for safety or then then we would have it but we ultimately decided that it wasn't necessary to to set that up that we could very easily just have him walk across while one of us held him at all times and that I would say was really more of a hindrance for him because he was more than willing to just walk across on his own accord without us. But just for safety, uh, for my own peace of mind, we decided to that one of us would always have a hand on his harness the entire time. So let's go back a ways and go back to the beginning when all of this happened. I do want to get your uh, thoughts on what it, well, you know, actually, you know what, let's go to the, when you climbed Capitol and you were done with this, what did it feel like to finally achieve this goal of climbing all of the 58 or, or all 58 of the 14ers. Oh my God. What, um, <laughs> what sense of, what was it like in your inner world when you did that? Well, it was, it was 
it was really great. Uh, I mean, when we hit the summit itself, I, I very much had like a, a surreal moment. I, I did get a little choked up um, and there were a couple of tears just because I've been working on this journey for, you know, seven years at that point and I wasn't sure that we would ever get it. And at, after missing the Capitol Summit the first summer and waiting a full year to get it that second time, I had sort of built up a lot of anxiety and I was nervous, made it so much bigger in my head than it ended up turning out to be. And so there was just this big wave of relief to be finished with this particular mountain. And and I, I don't want to say finished because I, in my opinion, a summit is only halfway. So there was no big celebration at the summit because I wanted to save the celebration for when we were back off the mountain completely and, you know, and in a, a safe environment. But when we hit the summit, there was definitely a wave of accomplishment coupled with relief. Yeah. Sorry, we did have a little party at Taco Bell that night, <laughs> just the two of us for our <laughs> celebration dinner in the car. <laughs> Maya, and down climbing can actually be more challenging than climbing up. How's Loki with that? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, in 2017, there were five deaths on Capitol Peak alone, and all of them, well, I should know not all of them, but um, several of them occurred on the descent. And with mountaineering, that's usually the time when most accidents happen. People are sort of not focusing as much. They're just relieved to have hit the summit. And so they're sort of riding that high and the adrenaline has, has come and gone. And, you know, that feeling of tiredness sort of starts to kick in. And so you may not be paying as much attention as you should be or your feet may give out or whatever. And so for, for me, I always have to make sure that I'm focusing in both directions and making sure that I'm keeping myself and him as safe as possible all the time. But as far as coming down and climbing, we have a very specific system that we employ that um, I've trained in with him, into him. And so when we're going down something really steep, I say the phrase, get behind, and he will actually, so I'll like sort of get into a crab walk position and he'll come right up behind me and he'll press right into my my back or my shoulder and sort of put his weight into me and then I'll just crab walk down as he's pressing into me and that way I'm sort of breaking his fall if he were to to fall if it's a really steep section so it's a, a great system that we've sort of compiled together so let's go back to the beginning how did you come across Loki and did you know from the beginning, like when you first saw him, that this was going to be an amazing dog? Or is that something that developed later? Let's start. How did you and Loki come together? Well, it's really a very unique situation in the way that I acquired him. So he actually came from a puppy mill that got shut down up in northern Colorado. And he one of two dogs that were left to be taken from this, this uh, place. And this other couple went to rescue what they thought was the last dog. And that's when they realized there were two. And they've realized, well, we can't leave one. We have to take them both. But they weren't really in a position to care for two dogs. And so they ended up putting him up for adoption on Craigslist. And that's how I came across him. I saw his photo. <laughs> I was looking for a dog at that point. Uh, <laughs> I knew that I wanted a northern breed dog. 
I've always loved them. So as soon as I saw his face, I mean, I saw his picture and that was it for me. So I was typing as fast as I could to send out a message to them. And as it turned out, I was the second person to reply to their post out of 400 people. So it was really amazing. I know, crazy how many people fell in love with him. I mean, well, not crazy because he's gorgeous, but just such a, a lucky moment for me. So we set up a time to meet and... As soon as I saw him, of course, I was in love and he took to me very quickly, thankfully as well. And I ended up taking him home that day. It was, it was a very lucky situation. From the moment that, uh, that we were together, we were just best buds. So really awesome. So where did the climbing come into this? When did you start on that hole? What was interesting is that I actually, at the time that I adopted him, I was not into hiking. I wasn't outdoorsy at all, to be honest. I had never been camping. I had done very little hiking in my life. I was 30 years old, so that's kind of sad, but I didn't really have a lot going on in my life. I didn't have many friends. I had just come out of a a relationship that was kind of crippling at the time. And so getting him was sort of a way to get my butt off the couch and to be more social and to be more active and to just have another presence in, in my house, a companion, so to speak. And so I had him for about three months when I went to a, a random happy hour meetup and I met a girl there who was really into the outdoors. She was a big hiker. She'd done several of the 14ers and she was just such a beautiful human and so excited about life. And I was so taken by her and her zest for life that I I was just like, can we please be friends and, you know, take me hiking? And so, yeah, we ended up doing a Memorial Weekend camping trip together and we hiked my very first 14er, which was Mount Albert, which is Colorado's tallest peak. And after that trip, which I should mention was like the hardest thing I'd ever done at the time, trying to get up that mountain, once I finally made it up, just seeing that view was undeniably beautiful. And it was really a life-changing moment for me. And from that moment on, I just wanted to hike anything that I could get my feet on. Something I want to add here is for those of you that haven't climbed a 14,000 foot peak, altitude really is a thing. Totally a thing. This first trip, I was wearing hiking shoes that I got at like a discount sporting goods store. They were $35 shoes. I had head to toe cotton. I was wearing like a, a Hollister sweatshirt and had no idea what I was doing. And at one point I stopped and sat down with my friend and like I, my speech was so slurred. I was so dizzy. I, my lips felt like they're about five sizes too big for my mouth. I was freezing. I, yeah, totally unprepared. I mean, mentally unprepared and well, and also physically unprepared. So yeah, I mean, it was so hard and I really didn't know what to expect as far as like being able to breathe. I had no idea how much more challenging it would be at those elevations versus, you know, just being at our campsite or, or whatever. But yeah, it's definitely a thing. <laughs> so how old was Loki when you did this first peak? He was nine months old. So he was actually very, very young. He was probably a little bit too young in all honesty to be hiking peak of that height and of that mileage. But at the time, I didn't know better because he was my the very first dog that I'd ever owned on my own. And I clearly still had a lot to learn about being a, a responsible dog dog owner. Luckily for me, and I think this is an, a testament to his breed, he just did fantastically uh, the entire time and never got tired, never needed to stop. 
just charged the whole way and, and enjoyed every minute of it. So you did the first peak and it was like, wow, okay, I'm, that was a challenge. I felt the altitude and da 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 da. What got you inspired to keep going? Once we got to the summit of that first one, and it was Memorial Day weekend, so this was May, but there was still quite a bit of snow looking out at the landscape, on, and you can see many other 14ers from that one particular one, Mount Albert. And so seeing all the other ones and that feeling of like being a, just such a, just one small being in this huge, vast landscape, that was really what did it for me. I loved that feeling of, wow, I just conquered this huge thing. But at the same time, like, I am so tiny in this enormous world. And I, I loved that sort of oxymoronic feeling. And that was really what motivated me to do another one was I, I wanted to, to have that feeling again and see another summit view like that. Something I would add to that is after having spent a good chunk of last summer in Colorado and climbing, did my own 14er, is Colorado really is in a league of its own for natural beauty, for majestic mountains. It's just over the top, even compared to the Sierras in California and some of the other ranges. Well, and what I really love about Colorado's peaks is uh, depending on which mountain range you're in, they're so different. You know, we have, you know, if, if you're in the, the Sawatch, which is where Mount Albert is, most of those 14ers look very similar as far as the landscape. But then you go down in the San Juans and each different 14er looks, the, the, land, the geology itself is very, very different versus going into the Elks. And then you're in this like sort of rotten, crumbly, red shale sort of rock. And so it's, really cool to have all of these different experiences and all of these different views in the, within one area, depending on where you are. You never get tired of seeing all these different views. It's cool. We're talking about Huskies here. And my experience with the Husky I'm taking care of is it's the most stubborn, willful, whiny dog I've ever seen. I have, I would not get one. I had an Australian Shepherd Border Collie mix that was the easiest dog I've ever even seen. He, he would heal left, heal right. He was up for anything. We could go do 35 mile mountain bike rides and he was like ready to go the next day. In fact, he'd need even more distance once he recovered and got even stronger. But wouldn't wander, was just always attentive and was quiet. <laughs> like, I sound like a strict dad, I guess, but that dog was so easy. This husky is like Wines, it is willful. Oh my God, it's willful. And so I have a lot of respect <laughs> for people that can deal with this breed. And it's, I think this leads into the next part is Loki sounds like a very exceptional husky. The way you've described him, he sounds more like a another kind of breed. <laughs> Well, as I, as I have said before, I really did hit the dog lottery with him because he is just the, the anti-husky. You know, he looks like a husky. He obviously is a husky, but personality-wise, he couldn't be any further from one in, in every sense of the, the, the word because he's, you know, he's highly trainable. He's a great listener. He's off-leash all the time. He does not wander. He will walk right by animals, which is amazing. Of course, all of this did take training. But the fact that he was, you know, even able to be trained to do this is incredible in and of itself. 
He's a great conversationalist, I will admit that. And he's an excellent singer. But yeah, he's he's just a, a good dog. He's, he doesn't have that sort of independent streak that most Huskies have. He's not always trying to escape and, and wander. I actually, I live in a condo on the third floor and he's so super mellow. He just hangs out with me all day while I'm working and chills out on, at, at my feet. Yeah, he, he stays by my side all the time. It's great. When he was going through some of his initial training, I had uh, I had worked with a trainer. But as far as the mountaineering training, that I was able to do on my own. And that was after he had already gone through his other training. And so we had built this sort of foundation, and I, I was better prepared for how to segue into the mountaineering-specific training. What special tricks did you learn in training that made it him a better dog? Yeah, I mean, there there are so many things that make him such a good, such a capable mountaineering dog. Things that he was just, you know, as far as natural abilities, but then also things that we trained specifically for. I mean, as far as like his natural ability, he's very small for a husky. He's only 41 pounds. So he's a lot smaller and, and more compact than a, a normal sized husky would be, which is great because there are situations where, you know, I may have to carry him or we may have to lift him up or, you know, give him a boost or whatever. And he's, I, I'm physically capable of, of doing that with him, but he's also really agile and light on his feet and kind of, he kind of is a, a prancy little dog. So he doesn't kind of, he's not really like a derpy husky that is just sort of like a bull in a china shop. He's like just the opposite of that. And so it's really helpful because, you know, when we're on these more tricky situations on, you know, harder terrain or areas where there is like a higher danger for rockfall, he is a lot more agile, you know, as far as where to put his feet and not sending rocks raining down on me or, or anybody else. So that's really helpful. But then as far as like his training, his you know, our actual training, we did learn like, you know, specific technique to be able to do these things safely and then also incorporating specific commands you know he does know left and right and scramble up and get behind and yeah just certain terms he can find cairns which is insane <laughs> let's fast forward here a little bit okay so you you did your first peak it's like ooh, i like this i think i'd like to do some more so you started doing some more peaks and my understanding is you kept going up right. uh they they got more and more advanced as you went along so describe that. I, I assume that his skills got better, your skills got better, your connection with a dog probably, with Loki probably, kept deepening. So maybe you can talk about all of that. When did you realize that this was going to be a thing? And when did you like think, <laughs> I want to do all 58s? Where do we start? That's a lot of questions for you. Let's start with... When did you realize that this was a thing you wanted to do and that Loki was up for it and it sort of cemented in as like, wow, we've got ourselves a... Initially, when we, you know, after we did the first one and then I, a few weeks later we did another one and then a couple of weeks after that we did another one and I really just wanted to hike as much as possible. And thankfully we did it very much in a progression. You know, there are so many 14ers here in Colorado that are easy and, you know, are easy walk-ups. And I don't want to say easy because none of them are easy, but on a sliding scale here, there are easier ones that don't require technical skills. And so we did all of those easier ones first and that allowed us to sort of gain some experience and just learn how to work together as a team and learn how to build up that trust and build up confidence for both of us, really. You know, I had I had no idea what I was doing when I first started. I was a total newbie hiker. And so doing 
more and more. I was getting more experience and then also getting more experience incorporated with him. And he got more confidence. And then we learned really how to work together as a team and, and, and learn how to trust each other. So it wasn't, we, it was probably about 30 to 35 peaks in. So a few years into this, this whole experience where I started thinking, oh, maybe this could be a thing. Really, probably the first time that I even sort of enter, started entertaining the idea that maybe we could finish this this whole list because up until then I hadn't really even been thinking about that. I was just enjoying the process. I was I just loved getting out and hiking. And we weren't only doing 14ers; we were hiking plenty of other mountains as well. Once we got into you know we got through the class one and class two easier peaks, and we started getting into the class three and the more technical terrain where it required more scrambles. And I was able to see his agility and see his ease of movement over the rock and in into exposed terrain and how willingly he was wanting to go that was when i sort of started thinking well you know maybe this this could be something yeah the more we started doing it getting into these more challenging peaks uh, and it just kept coming together and i i thought well if we ever get into a situation where it's too much then you know we'll stop we'll we'll, we'll call it because it wasn't it's never been an experience where like, I, I will do it at all costs. You know, I'm only willing to climb something as long as he's willing to to climb it too. Nothing is ever forced. If he doesn't want to do something, we're not doing it because he is my partner. He's, you know, he's as much of a partner as any human partner would be. He gets just as much say as any human would. So did you reach some points where it was like, ah, maybe we need to back off of this. And then somehow you busted through that and I mean, as far as like the the physical aspect of it, you know, the, the, I should say the 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 technical aspect of it, because we did it as a progression and started doing easy and then you know more difficult and then most difficult and then hard. We never got into sort of a, I should say an oh shit situation necessarily where it was too hard for us. I, I don't really remember there being any like really really terrifying situation as far as the terrain, with the exception, there was one time where I got off a uh, route and we ended up in a kind of in scary terrain, but that, that was very early on in our hiking and that was not the normal route. And we were thankfully able to get out of that safely, but just in our, our normal hikes, everything sort of went, went pretty well. Now, as far as the mental aspect of it, that I would say, yeah, we definitely had a lot more highs and lows where sometimes I would sort of hit a wall mentally and and just my heart wasn't into it at times. And so we would sort of take a step back and do other things. And then eventually I would miss being out there and we'd come back to it. Can you describe one of those times? Like what happened specifically? Yeah, there was this one time about two years ago, there are four, uh, there's a cluster of four 14ers down in the San Juans, which is southwestern Colorado. And this is an area called Chicago Basin. And Chicago Basin is not easily accessible. There are two ways to access it. There's one where you can either hike in from a trailhead that is about 16 miles away from your base camp area, or you can take a train from a town and from, from town to a trailhead that's a little bit closer. And so our first trip into Chicago Basin, we took the train and then um, that was about 45 minutes. And then we hiked in from there. That was about six miles to get to our base camp. And I was on a very tight schedule uh, because it was my weekend. And so I, I only had, I, I think we had 
four days, including travel time. And it's a six and a half hour drive and then a 45 minute train ride and then the big hike in and wanting to summit four peaks. So very tight schedule. I had basically I had to do two summits on one day, two summits the next day. And that was it. Like we had that perfect weather and there's no second chances. And so the first day that we were attempting to do our first two peaks, we got up the first one really quickly, really easily. And the second peak is right next to it because the, the first one's a sub peak, but it's, so it's only about a 200 foot elevation difference between the first and the second one. So really, really close together, separated by a tiny little catwalk that's very exposed. Well, we summited the first peak and we were walking along that catwalk and the weather changed in an instant. And I saw those clouds coming in and I could tell that hail was coming and hail was coming very quickly. And that second peak is a more challenging peak. It's a lot more technical. It's very, very exposed and it's ledgy. And so it's, mm. it's basically a no fall zone because if you fall, you die. And so it was not an area that I wanted to be in if there was any sort of crappy weather or, or rain or, you know, being on wet rock would have just been a, a nightmare. So unfortunately in that instance, I realized we're not going to get this summit. We, we shouldn't even attempt and we actually need to get down away from this inclement weather as fast as possible so yeah I ended up, we ended up having to basically just kind of run down to get further you know further away from the storm in case of lightning and in case of hail and I just remember once we sort of got back down a little bit more towards safety I stopped in the middle of the trail I like sunk down and just sat in the middle of the trail and like started bawling my eyes out because I was so upset, like so disappointed being so close to that one, that other summit and not getting it. And now I'm like, I have to come all the way back here because we didn't get this summit. And it was such a huge trip and such a long drive and the train ride and the hike and all this. And I basically just had a big temper tantrum in the middle of the trail, a little pity party for myself. <laughs> Thankfully, nobody was with me, so it wasn't too embarrassing. <laughs> but yeah, that that in that moment, I sort of I, I started questioning, like, why am I even doing this? Like, why am I doing this to myself? Because I was just feeling really overwhelmed with how much effort I'd put in, and, and still was it was a failure. And so after that particular experience, I decided, okay, maybe I need to take a step back and focus some more of my time on just doing other things that I enjoy, you know, maybe we'll take a road trip or maybe we'll just do some really fun, easy hikes, or maybe we'll go swimming or, or, you know, whatever. And so that's exactly what we did. And I spent a few months just doing really fun, easy things and, and a little bit more like casual exploring. We took a couple of trips and eventually I remembered why I love climbing mountains and it, it all came back and I missed it very much. And I decided, okay, it's time to, to get back out there. So let's let's ask let's ask that question. Why do you climb mountains? What is the allure, the attraction to you? Oh gosh, I mean, well, there's so many things. Really, there's not really one question. I, I think people are probably thinking I'll, I'll go for the the obvious because it's there <laughs> that that most people seem to throw out. I I rem I I know I've heard the story, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. Do you know how that saying came about? By the way. It was George. So it was George Mallory. He was the first person to potentially summit Everest. Yeah. And somebody asked him at a press conference, like, why, 
why do you do it? And he very flippantly just said, because it's there. And it like, all right, that was the sound bite and off they ran with it. So why not? You know, <laughs> for me, it's a little bit more personal, but there are, are several reasons why. I mean, I love the physicality of it. I love that challenge, but it's also the time that I spend in the mountains. That's sort of my time to, to recharge and reset my mind. I think the simple act of just putting one foot in front of the other in a repetitive motion, that allows your mind to sort of wander. And so any sort of difficult stuff that I may be thinking about or dealing with in my own life at the time, that's when I can really compartmentalize those things and put things in perspective. And I know like once I come back from being out on in a mountain, all those things just don't seem very important. And especially once you get to a summit and you're looking out and you're seeing this huge world and how small you are, like I've mentioned before, it really puts a lot of your problems in perspective. You know, who cares that somebody like cut you off in traffic? Like, does that really matter? The world is so much bigger than you. And so that that's just such a, a great gentle reminder. And so that's really what I love about it the most. As something that I've I've done a, a bit of mountaineering, not as much as you have, but one of the aspects I really liked about it, and also for alpine ski expeditions, like crossing the Wind River Range and stuff, there's something, especially a peak though, there's something so sweet about the singular focus. There are all these things that have to come together to get to the summit, but you're you're always remembering that the reason you're here is to reach the summit or to try to reach the summit. And it's something that marshals all of these different aspects together, the organization, the training, the gear, and all of it to come together for a single focus. And it really makes life nice. Those moments so clean and simple. It's like, there's the summit. That's what I'm going for. And everything else coming into this is in, you know, is, is in the efforts to get me on top of there. And there's a real easy way to measure whether you succeeded or not. Did you stand on the summit? And I think you really hit the nail on the head there because, yeah, you do all this planning and all the training and all this preparation. But then once you're out there, there's really one singular focus, and that is to get to the top. And re regardless of whether you actually reach the summit is not as important as the process itself, but you're really focusing in the moment on, especially as you get into the more technical terrain, you're focusing on on what you're doing. And even though like if I'm just walking on easy terrain, my mind is wandering, sure. But then once you get into that harder stuff, you're just thinking about, okay, where do I put my hand? Where do I put my feet? Where does Loki need to be? And and that, that sort of hyper focus is to me, it's very soothing. It's very calming because it, it's very uncomplicated. And sometimes we allow our lives to become so extremely cluttered and complicated. So just to be able to be physical with our bodies, but in a very simple way, I think allows our bodies to sort of recharge and, and reset from all the outside noise that we're always dealing with. There's this beauty of especially on these exposed ridges where you have these grand views and some challenging terrain and you're dealing with altitude and there's all these things going on and it's so um, almost otherworldly sometimes. And it, to me, sometimes I feel like I go to an, almost an otherworldly or elevated place inside. You know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why people say the the mountains to them, it's like going to church because it is sort of like that sort of that it's like a spiritual experience. And I think when you're at a higher elevation, you feel closer to the, the sky. And I mean, I don't know if, if you I'm not necessarily a, a spiritual person myself, but to me, it's I, I feed off of that energy in the environment. And that is what is sort of spiritual to me. And so that's sort of it's just a refreshing feeling. To, to be sur- surrounded by beauty. And, and there's so many studies that have shown that nature has so many healing properties and that's such a, a great natural treatment for a, a lot of especially me- mental illnesses and things like that. It is for depression. It's I actually went through pretty prolonged depression when I um, thought I might go blind from glaucoma. And nature was one of the pl- places where I could really get out of that funk or at least it it wouldn't hit as hard when I could get out in nature and hike and all of that. I loved it. You know, along the same lines for me, at the time before I started hiking, I was coming out of this really sort of horrible situation where I was really, really depressed. I wasn't eating. I wasn't getting off the couch. And my family had to sort of stage an intervention for me because I was in such a low place mentally. And I think that was you know, looking back, that was probably one of the biggest reasons why I took to it was because coming from such a low place and then feeling that high of that first summit in such a stark contrast, I was eager to have that 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 high again, that feeling of, of that sheer happiness again. And in that sense, doing this whole process of, of hiking is what saved me from my my darkest, darkest times. Another aspect of this, too, would be your relationship with Loki, right? I I remember a divorce lawyer telling me, hey, if you want to experience unconditional love, get a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And... I, I, you know, that feeling when I, I had a dog named Deco. It was an Australian Shepherd Border Collie mix. And the war, the, I mean, still decade after I had to put him down, I still, still feel this warmth around him that just, I remember these incredible times with him. And then more recently taking care of my friend's dog named Jombo in Colorado. It was such a, there's just this feeling that goes so deep and, Oh, I mean, love, I guess. I don't know what to call it, but it's, it is, it's magic. Unconditional love. Yeah, it's a very pure form of love. It's a very uncomplicated love, I think, because, you know, human relationships can be so complicated that you have, it's not just a very simple kind of emotion. You know, you you fight, relationships are hard, you have highs and lows, but with a with a dog or, or many other animals, you don't have those highs and lows. It's just highs. It's it's just a very simple, <laughs> happy love. And going through this whole process with Loki has been so incredibly special because we both have learned so much and grown as a team. And I think I think being in such a unique, having this unique experience, but also being in such a beautiful surrounding when we're having this experience has really made it even more special. He loves hiking. He loves climbing mountains. I mean, it, you can tell it's his passion. The second I start bringing out the gear, he goes crazy because he knows we're about to have a fun time. And so I know that he enjoys it. 
So being able to have that fun experience together where we're building this incredible bond and we're doing something that's challenging, but we're still overcoming that, that's what's made our bond especially, especially tight, I think. I can hear her. <laughs> yeah. Hear her. Oh, <laughs> For those of you listening to this, I'm taking care of this husky that will not stop whining. <laughs> and it is how apropos for a podcast I'll be interviewing somebody that took a husky on all of these great peaks. Um, they are not my kind of dog. <laughs> Hold on. I've got to deal with this. Unconditional love. We were talking about unconditional love. <laughs> with an... <laughs> oh, maybe, boy. Maybe not so much Which on I'm your not end. Feeling for... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's go into the bigger life lessons you've gotten from all of this. What have you learned about yourself? What have you, yeah, what have you learned about yourself on all of this? Who were you before you were climbing all of these peaks? And who are you now that you've climbed all of these peaks? What sort of growth did you experience in doing all of them? Well, you know, to be honest, I, I have to say that my life, is, it's like night and day difference between who I was before and who I am at this point in my life. Before we, So describe who you were before. Yeah, before we had ever stepped foot on one, I, I really, in all honesty, I really wasn't much of a human being, <laughs> which sounds terrible, but it's true. <laughs> I had come out of a, a pretty dark relationship, a pretty abusive relationship. And going through that process, I had sort of become just a beaten down person. I had lost all of my friends through that period of time. So I, I had nobody to lean on once I got out of that. I didn't have a clue who I was as an individual. I didn't find enjoyment in, in things, you know, everyday things in life. I didn't have hobbies. I didn't really, I was just basically existing. I wasn't living at all and I didn't know who I was. But throughout the process of, of climbing all these peaks and, and finding having Loki and then getting through these, these climbs, I learned so much. Some of them being kind of what I'm obviously what I'm capable of physically and mentally overcoming challenges, but then also like learning to trust myself and learning to be self-sufficient and learning to be sufficient with when it's just, when I say self-sufficient, I should say with Loki and me, because we are, of course, always not depending on another person for my own happiness. I can create my own happiness and it's a, a very easy thing to do, but also learning to trust my instincts and becoming experienced and becoming a mentor to other people because I really enjoy that now. And in doing that, I feel very empowered and so I've, I've become more extroverted. I'm more confident. I'm more willing to take risks and not, not crazy risks, not dangerous risks, but um, just risks in my everyday life. Now I always say I shy away from what is safe because I don't ever want to live a safe, comfy, cozy life. I always want to be challenged. I always want to step outside my comfort zone because that's when you grow as a person when you are uncomfortable and when you're scared and when you're pushing yourself. And so now that's where I like to live all the time. So yeah, just, just going through mm -hmm. all this, like I, going down, going from a, a broken down shell of a person to somebody who I feel like is really more of a force and 
it feels so good. It feels so empowering to be this person. And although I don't miss who I was before, I never could have become this person had I not gone through that initial experience. And then, of course, the experience of, of becoming a climber as well. So what's next? <sighs> I know I get that question a lot and I, I've been trying to think about it for a while after we finished. I didn't even want to think about that because I just wanted to sort of like revel in our accomplishment and, and just be be comfy and cozy for a second. But now I'm, I'm starting to think about it more and um, I do want to get out to, to California this summer and start on some of those 14ers. Obviously, we're not going to finish any of those, you know, all of those because they are very technical. They're actual like multi-pitch rock climbs for several of those, but we'll do some, whichever ones we can and just have fun with it. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned kind of in passing and before that I, I kind of a pipe dream is, is Denali. I, I would very much like to, to give that a go. Realistically, I, I don't know if that's possible. You know, Loki's eight years old. He's still in fantastic shape physically he's not showing any signs of slowing down but you never know you know we have we do have just sort of a a few years i think before that window starts to close and so we'll we'll see sort of how far we can get with that that goal and whether that's attainable but if so that would be a really wonderful experience i think something to aspire to indeed twenty thousand feet big boy yeah, we've done, I mean, I've, I've done a few international climbs uh, myself, and those have been really fun. And I think it's great, you know, obviously living in Colorado and being in this environment that's already high up. And I've I've done a couple of summit camps as preparation for some of our, our higher altitude climbs. And so it's not such a shock to my system, I think, as if I were somebody coming from sea level. So I think the, the elevation on that is less of a challenge than a lot of the other factors that would be present for that one. <laughs> so I have some questions here from some of my Facebook uh, that were submitted yeah, via it. Facebook. So one of them is, and she says this, Inara asks tongue in cheek, why? <laughs> why do you climb the mountains? We sort of covered that, but why don't you go ahead and give it another? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, another, talked, about, uh, we talked about that already. Uh, I think we covered that pretty well. Um but uh, it's, it's, it's fun, you know, it's that challenge is every experience is completely different. It, each one is unique. We have uh, collectively about 85 14er summits under our belt. And I can tell you, I remember every single one of them like crystal clear because they're all so different. And each one has just been such an amazing experience. Not all of them have been awesome, obviously. <laughs> Some of them have been really disappointing or terrifying or exhausting <laughs> or utter failures. But even that, that's a learning experience. And so the, the experiences that I'm having, you know, these, these are creating life lessons for me that I can take into other aspects of my life. And I, I, I appreciate that. It's teaching me who I am as a person and what I'm capable of. And I, I really, really appreciate that. Okay. Here's the next question from Patty. She asks, do you pack a spot, one of those um, uh, location beacons? Or what emergency protocols have you established? And have you ever been in a situation where you had to actually activate emergency yeah, protocols? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, especially if in my situation, which is sort of unique because you know, the whole reason why I, I started climbing with Loki is because you know I have some I, I don't want to say limitations, but I have to take certain precautions. And so having him there as, as an alert dog is really helpful because when we're 
miles away from the nearest hospital. If something were to happen to me, you know, it's not like I can just call 911 and have an ambulance come pick me up and take me to the, the nearest emergency room. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, he obviously is a, a great addition to my, my climbing partner group. And so we're able to prevent these situations before they arise. But as far as the spot or a personal locator beacon, um, I, I do carry one sometimes, not all the time. Once I, I used to not do that, but uh, once we started getting into the more technical terrain, I felt like it was just a good backup to have if anything were to happen. Not necessarily with me in an emergency situation, but just kind of like a like if, if any any sort of other emergency were to happen, like if I were to break my leg or um, if something were to happen to him. I have carried him uh, one time when he was injured. I had to carry him about three and a half miles back and take him to the vet. And thankfully, he's small enough that I can do that. Um, yeah, he wow. got a porcupine. He met a porcupine in the bushes. Porcupine. <laughs> yeah, it was on an. It was we were in a backpacking trip on an approach, and we were like the trail was really, really thin, and it was on each side we were like these super tall bushes, and he's like the bushes rustled, and he stuck his face in and came out with a forty a face full of forty four quills. That was a very scary, scary experience. So. Um, yeah, I had to carry him about three and a half miles over my shoulders, like potato sacking him and raced off to the vet. So in situations like that, obviously a spot's not going to come in handy, but I carry an in-reach. So yeah, like if something were to happen to one of my other partners or, you know, if I t- tumbled down uh, some train and, and was physically injured or something, it's it's nice to have that line of communication. And also just to be able to keep in touch with people who are, are back home. If something were to happen, like, you know, say we run into some crazy weather and, and we have to spend the night out there or, or whatever, it's nice to be able to text somebody and say, hey, I'm alive, I'm safe, but I'm not going to be home tonight, so don't worry, and just be able to communicate. Okay, this next question is from Peter. He asks, how many dogs have you been through? <laughs> been through so far zero. I mean, I'm on, I'm, I'm on the one. <laughs> Loki's actually my, my very first dog that I've ever owned on my own. Previously, I, I was a cat, cat owner. Yeah, I don't know how the, they would do as far as mountaineering or should I say meowntaineering? <laughs> meowntaineering. <laughs> Probably not too well. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was a bad, bad cat pun. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's, he's my, my first dog. So man, I don't, I'm like ruined for life with him because I don't think I'm ever going to have another dog who is uh, kind of uh, on his level at, you know, at his caliber. So I, I don't even allow myself to think about that day when that's no longer an option. Okay, next question comes from Glendale, and she asks, did you ever have a trip where everything went sideways right from the get-go? <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I, I sometimes have not the best luck. I try to be as prepared as possible, but I will admit that usually there's always one thing that I will forget that's like, not necessarily like the most vital, but like really nice to have whenever I do a backpacking trip. Yeah, there was this one backpacking trip last summer. This was not a 14er, but it was, uh, again, down in the San Juans. We were going to this area called Vestal Basin. And so I had to hike 10 miles in. And this was seriously like the Murphy's Law of trips. Like it was nuts. I remember like just hiking in, there were four different avalanche 
debris areas that we had to like go up and over and I'm carrying this enormously heavy pack and then the last what mile or two of it I mean it's practically like straight up on just garbage scree and I had I fell on that and like scraped myself up we finally get to camp and I'm so so hungry and I can't wait to have dinner and I realized I, I forgot my, oh no, well, even before that, so I stopped in one spot to have a drink of water. So I took out my little, I have like a bag where I keep all of my like sort of miscellaneous smaller items and my straw was in there, like my my Sawyer straw so I can filter my water. So I, I stopped and drank and I didn't realize that I forgot to grab that little small bag with all of my other small items and I left it at the river. And I went two miles up to my camp and I didn't realize until I went to cook my dinner. Oh my God, I don't have my little bag, which had my lighter, my knife, my rope to be able to hang up my, my food bag. My headlamp was in there. Just, I mean, vital things were, were in that, that I absolutely had to have. I set up camp super fast and then I had to run back down two miles and over a thousand feet of elevation loss to go pick up that bag, come back up after I'd already hiked 10 miles. I had to do that twice. And then I finally get back up with all of my stuff and I realized I didn't have my stove or my, my propane. And all of my food was hot food. Like I had oatmeal for the morning. I had ramen for my my dinners, I had freeze dried. I mean, it was, it was terrible. Like basically I ate cookies for three days. <laughs> it was cookies and a couple of nuts. And, and so, yeah, that was terrible. And then the next day we went and hiked one of the mountains on the way back down. I got kind of sidetracked on a social trail versus like the actual trail. I realized my mistake and like we sort of had to traverse like around the side of the mountain to get back to the real trail. And I lost my balance or something happened and I tripped and basically like log rolled down the slide of this mountain and just like completely busted up the entire left side of my body, like just scraped it horribly. So I had to like hobble back down to camp, triage my entire left side. And then the next night I was awoken at two o'clock in the morning by an animal outside of my campsite, like charging through the campsite and of course it's two o'clock in the morning I'm by myself I just have the dog he's like awake and alert and like what's that when you're in that situation like everything's a bear obviously and so I'm just like I'm clutching my my little tiny like pocket knife like death grip like what's out there is there a bear and it like it actually like whatever it was like approaches my tent I feel it boop the side of my rain fly and I'm just like I just start screaming as loud as I can, like telling it to get lost because you're supposed to do that when there's a bear and took off. And so for like two hours after that, I'm just like, you know, wrapped up in my sleeping bag, my eyes like as wide as can be clutching my knife for dear life and adrenaline just oh charging through your blood system. So like, was, ah. <laughs> <laughs> just terrified out of my mind. And turns out in the morning, in the light of day, and I I went around and inspected my campsite, and it was deer prints. <laughs> so that was a really fun, fun trip. <laughs> okay, this next question comes from Raven. I actually know her. She's is a, um, I think she's an animal 
whisper or something. She or psychic, I think, she, or at least she used to do that. Anyway, she asks, "How has doing these climbs brought you and your dog closer together?" Oh gosh, in so many ways, I think it's it's really solidified our bond as a, as a companionship and as a team because as we take on the more as we took on the more challenging peaks, we really had to trust each other and put our faith, you know, him trusting that I'm going to always keep him safe and always make sure that whatever situation we're in, that we can handle it together and I'm never biting off more than he can chew. And so he trusts me in the same sense that I'm trusting him also to keep me safe as, as far as uh, medically safe. And so that that's created such an awesome bond, but then also like building up our confidence together and and taking on like harder and harder challenges because there's such an awesome feeling of being sort of scared or or uneasy or, or nervous about something. But knowing that we are able to do it, we just have to make that, take that first step and try it. And then once we do and and we sort of conquer it, it's such a, a, a feeling of accomplishment. And so to be able to do that together and feed off of that energy is really a special thing. And I love seeing that look of accomplishment in his face because he gets so excited when he is facing a challenge. You know, maybe a, a certain section is, is really difficult for him. And he has to sort of think about, okay, how am I going to get up this? And you can actually see the wheels turning through his eyes. And he's like scoping out the best way to get up it and then once he does i mean his his whole expression changes and he just lights up and you know tails wagging and he's so excited and it's such a special thing and i think going through those challenges together and feeling those highs together is what makes our bond so amazing and so so extra deep for me Hmm. this sort of leads into the next question from ann she asked, does your dog ever look at you with a worried face regarding a difficult technical area that you're both attempting? Yes, he does. And he has a very expressive face. I actually think it's funny because like I said, he doesn't really have derpy face. He, I say he has resting bitch face because he's a very, <laughs> he's a very stoic looking dog. He doesn't smile a lot. He always looks like he's kind of pissed off, but those moments where he is taking on something challenging when he smiles, I think that's what makes it so special is because he doesn't sit around and smile, have that that sort of like goofy dog face. But yeah, she's very thoughtful in the way that he approaches terrain and approaches climbing. And we certainly have been in situations where I, I can tell that he's unsure and he is very good at expressing that to me in sort of like an unspoken language, just using his body language. And normally what he'll do if like he, we come to a a more difficult section, he's sort of uneasy about it is if he wants to try it, he'll sort of like, he'll just sort of go for it, but really slowly, he might take a couple of, might take him a couple tries. I usually like to let him lead or I'll sandwich him. If I have a climbing partner, my partner will go first and then he'll go and then I'll bring up the rear. But he always wants to follow. As long as there's somebody in front of him that's gone past a difficult section, that sort of tells him okay, if they can do it, I can do it. And so he's always more willing to give it a shot. But there have definitely been situations where he's been legitimately nervous to the point that he actually doesn't even want to try it. And in those instances, we're, we're done. We're, we're done for the day. I can never force him to, to attempt something that he legitimately doesn't want to do because I think that would break that trust that we've taken so long to build up. 
And I think that's a really important thing to always be cognizant about is making sure that every experience for him is as positive as possible and, and encouraging him because that's what's going to make him want to keep going. And so if, like I said, he gets just as much say. So if he is too scared or he's too tired or, or whatever, and he doesn't want to try something, then then we don't. And we'll, we'll find either an, an, another way around or another route, or we'll go home and we'll practice doing sort of the same kind of moves uh, on similar terrain somewhere else. And then we'll come back to it. And by that point, once we've mastered it, he's he'll be more willing to to do it and and be more successful that time. So I think that's our been one of the secrets to our success. I would say. <laughs> okay, next question comes from Alan A L U N. Who's your favorite mountaineer, or do you have one? <sighs> I don't have one. I know I I should probably. You know, as cheesy as as cheesy as it sounds. He, he's my favorite, Loki's my favorite mountaineer, <laughs> which I know is silly, but like as far as like, you know, more famous mountaineers, I don't really have one in particular. I'm very, I admire so many mountaineers, of course, but I don't ever like to idolize anybody or try to follow in anybody's footsteps. I really want to like forge my own path and make this journey my own. And I do find inspiration in other people, but at the same time, I I just want to stay really, really grounded. And so I, I think by like following somebody else or, you know, watching their social media or, or whatever, that sometimes can affect how I am as a mountaineer and um, the, the challenges that I put in front of myself or in front of him. And, and so I, I don't ever want to be influenced by anybody else, I guess I should say. Uh, do you have anybody that inspires you? Could be in any other field. Doesn't have to be rock climbing or mountaineering or anything, but somebody that you really um, admire and, I don't know, maybe emulate or seek to emulate? You know, I can't, I guess I, I can't think of a singular person off the top of my head. I really love watching people who are doing unique things, you know, whether or not they're more famous or, or whatever, that doesn't matter to me. I just, I love seeing situations that are, are kind of going against the norm or, or that are new and sort of stepping outside the box. And so anytime I see something like that, somebody doing, you know, putting up a first, first ascent or, or whatever, I, I, I am always really inspired that because that's a totally unique challenge. And I, I feel inspired by that, especially because I feel like Loki and I are in that situation ourselves, where we're doing things that other people or very few other people have done. A couple other people, a few other dogs have done all the, the 14ers in Colorado, which is incredible in my book. Just having gone through it myself, I know how challenging it is for a, for a dog to be able to do it. But, you know, for us also having done Rainier, and so, you know, no dog has done all of the Colorado 14ers and the 14er in Washington, aside from Loki. And so that's a really special thing but at the same time realistically like that doesn't matter because Loki doesn't care what we're doing what how tall the mountain is or what box we're checking or what list we've completed and so I I try to follow in his footsteps in that sense and just enjoy every experience and not seeking like a, a status or glory or recognition or you know it's just being just appreciating every moment for what it is. So yeah, I kind of shy away from fame and, and celebrity in all other aspects of my life. That might bring about another question, but let's let's continue with these. Do you ever get scared? Do you ever get scared 
Have you gotten scared on some of these? Yes. Not not too many times. I feel like for the most part, we are, we're pretty dialed in with our technique. And I don't really get super scared with exposure. You know, I'll get butterflies or whatever, but I'm pretty good at focusing on exactly what's in front of me and at the task at hand and putting all that other stuff sort of kind of putting blinders on, I guess I should say. But we have been in situations where that have been a little bit more frightening. I would say the one of the most frightening experiences was on a peak in the Sawatch range, which was Mount Columbia. So you normally, you, Mount Columbia is right next to Mount Harvard, and you can do them as a traverse. They're two and three quarter mile apart, separated by a ridgeline, like a very long ridgeline. And so that day I had done a really super quick ascent of Mount Harvard first thing in the morning and summited it at 8.30. It was a beautiful bluebird day, calm wind, like just perfect weather. And so I was feeling really strong and decided to go ahead and make the traverse over to Columbia. And the whole thing is above treeline. The trail dips just below the ridgeline off to the east side. And so you can't see what's coming from the west. As we were making our way through or across the traverse, the weather shifted. Again, this is Colorado. It's very unique with its weather in that it can kind of come out of nowhere. We have very, very severe lightning storms here. Not so much in the PNW uh, where you know you're from or or you have those the volcanoes, but yeah, in Colorado it's it's very different situation. And so even though I had that that perfect summit you know, an hour prior as we're making our way and I can't see the weather had changed. And all of a sudden I just start feeling sort of like the air starts feeling thicker and the temperature dropped. And then as the clouds came over the ridge from the West, like the West and Southwest, I started realizing, oh, this is actually turning into a storm out of nowhere. It ended up being a hailstorm. So I, I was, thankfully I had service, but, and I was able to call a friend of mine or text a friend of mine and, and ask him, Hey, can you take a look at the weather model? Like, see what's going on. Is this like a quick moving thing? Do I want to just like hunker down here and kind of wait it out? Or do I need to like make a run for it? What should I do? Cause the clouds were looking pretty nasty at that point and hail was coming down, get down as fast as possible. And so unfortunately, as we were on the traverse, only way to get out was to go up and over Mount Columbia. And so that's what we had to do. Going th- up, once we got like sort of higher in elevation towards the summit, we actually went into those storm clouds and were completely surrounded by them. And so that was like a lightning storm. Like there was just a lot of electricity in that cloud. And I remember like the buzzing from my trekking poles, like right at my ear and feeling all this static. <laughs> yeah. I know that sound. Yeah, like low hums. Yeah. And the static from my clothes, like everywhere they touched my body, it was like a thousand like tiny little like shocks, not painful, but sort of, you know, just uncomfortable where you feel like you're just being jolted every time you're you move basically and your clothes hit you and my hair was sticking straight up in the air. I had Loki was wearing a harness at the time and I took his harness off because it had like one tiny little metal piece. And I'm like, Nope, we're not going to take, I mean, any chance I was trying to, to mitigate the dangers. And so we just like ran as fast as possible. I'm carrying my trekking pole as low to the ground as possible. Cause it's a lightning rod, obviously. Yeah. Once we got back, 
maybe 200 feet below those clouds off the summit, it was beautiful again. It was like just this one isolated area once we got below that summit that, yeah, it was nuts. But anyway, what's really actually sad about this story is even though it was a frightening situation for us to be in, it was even more sad because on an adjacent peak, uh, another another 14er on Mount Yale, that very same day in that very same storm, lightning did strike and hit four climbers and killed one of them. And for that to be right next to us and to have happened, you know, in that same time that we were there is it was just is a very humbling moment and a, a good, you know, a very sad learning opportunity for me. It was very, very sobering. Yeah. And it really made me more aware of always being aware of like what the weather is doing, even when I can't necessarily see it. And even when it seems like it's going to be fine, it can change in an instant. You never know. And so just being sort of like hyper aware. Yeah. Okay. So next question, this is again from Alan. He asks, um, what mindset do you need to be a great climber? I think, well, I think there are a couple. One is is feeling confidence. Even when you're nervous, you have to just trust that you can do something. You can't be frozen with fear because I think once you let the fear creep in, it eventually will just take over. It's kind of like, I don't know, um, I used to skydive several years ago. And it's one of those things where like you're standing on the edge of, of the plane and you're ready to jump out. And the longer you stand there, the harder it is to actually jump out. You have to just keep moving and keep going through the motions and don't ever stop. Don't ever like second guess yourself. Just keep keep your body in motion. And so I think it's the same thing mentally. Always keep your mind in motion and don't be crippled by that fear. But then also I think, and this is something that sometimes gets forgotten in mountaineering especially, is to always be humble. I think as you start to get more experience and you start to get more notches on your belt, it's very easy to sort of get a big head about things or or to um, be more elitist. And so always remembering like there's always something to learn. The mountains are the ultimate teacher and they are always going to come out on top. They are number one and you may if you're lucky, be a distant too. Being humble and being willing to to learn and 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 grow from every experience, and um, it, it only takes like you can be the best climber in the world, but like the mountain is always going to win. So uh, you can have one bad experience and it'll knock you right on your ass and and humble you. So, a good friend of mine yeah. named Mark <laughs> that actually got me into ice climbing and rock climbing and mountaineering and stuff uh, when I was in Sun Valley, Idaho. I remember saying, let's go conquer that peak. And he said, conquer, excuse me. (laughs) And he said, when you go up on these mountains with me anyway, we're not conquering anything. We are the invited guests of nature. And sometimes that peak, sometimes those mountains will let us have a great experience up there. But we're not conquering anything. If nature wants to kick our butts, it will have no problem doing that. So, Always be, I don't like to use the word humble, but it was basically always be respectful and, you know, forget the conquering thing. It just, it's not why we're here. I totally agree. I never use that word either um, for that very same reason, because you're not conquering something. You're being allowed safe passage or maybe sometimes not even safe passage. <laughs> maybe yeah. unsafe passage <laughs> or maybe no passage. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Maybe you'll be passing on to the next frontier. <laughs> right, right. So it's, 
it's always an important lesson to keep yourself in check. So that finishes the questions of uh, from some of my Facebook compadres. Uh, sort of to wrap this up, what would you pass on? What top maybe three tips would you pass on to others that are thinking about this or something similar? You know, some sort of big challenge in their own life that takes literally years, especially in your case, to pull this off because yeah. there's so many peaks to climb. What what sort of encouragement, inspiration, and especially maybe calls to action could they, what can they do to be capable of doing this and to do it? I, well, first of all, I should say, if, if we're speaking specifically of wanting to summit all these 14ers with, a, with your dog, I'm going to flat out say, don't. <laughs> please, please, please don't attempt this. Um, <laughs> I do not want to be responsible for providing encouragement for somebody taking their pet dog up these incredibly dangerous peaks. You know, this is really a, a very unique situation for us to be able to do it and to be able to do it safely. But there are so many factors that had to come together so perfectly for this to be a success and, and for us to be able to do it. So uh, in that sense, I don't with this particular situation. Have fun, you know, enjoy the class ones, class twos, maybe an easier three or so with your dog if it's especially skilled and capable and has experience. But, um, you know, the rest of the time, just let him snooze on the couch and, and enjoy a peaceful day. But, you know, for anything else, any any other challenge, non canine mountaineering related, I would say, take the first step. For me, the first step was getting my butt off the couch and deciding to go to a happy hour meetup with people, you know, to see, to meet people that I had, I was by myself. I knew not a single other person. And I was so shy at that point and had no friends. And so that to me felt like climbing a mountain almost, you know, mentally because I was, I was terrified. And so really just giving myself the encouragement to say, okay, we're just going to start here and see how it goes. And from there, everything snowballed. So just like get up off the couch, make an attempt because you never know the instant that your life is going to change and how drastically different it can become just by taking that one teeny tiny little step. You know, number two, I would say expect to fail because it is going to happen. It's, it's just inevitability of life. There's always going to be peaks and valleys and, and sometimes it sucks and you have to just have a little pity party for yourself in the middle of the trail by yourself. Then get up, get up, brush yourself <laughs> up and, and keep going. And I will say that that second time we went back, we, we did get the rest of those three summit. It was okay to have that little temper tantrum that one time. Are you talking about in the sand ones? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but having, taking that experience and realizing like there are going to be times when there are failures, but that's when you really need to like pick yourself up by your bootstraps and like just dig in, try harder, train harder, be faster, get stronger, start earlier, you know, do all these things and, and learn from those failures and just go out and try again. And then three, trust your instincts. I would say you always know you know what you're capable of. And uh, so for number three, I would say just, just trusting your, your gut, trusting your instincts. You know your own capabilities and your own limitations and trust like how you're, you're feeling in that moment. Like, does something seem too hard? Does something seem hard, but you, you know that you can do it? Does the situation seem 
just a little off, uh, you know, maybe you're having a bad day or, or maybe all of the, the components aren't coming together, you know, just reading a situation and, and taking in all the different factors and making smart decisions, but also not being afraid to take a risk. Well, okay, here's another one. This is a, a question asked by Tim Ferriss of his guests that I really like. What books have inspired you? Oh, I, I love to geek out <laughs> on, um, on like mountaineering books. And I, I love reading about like different stories. Uh, right now I'm reading Over the Edge, which is the story about when uh, Tommy Caldwell and, and Beth Rodden were taken hostage. But yeah, I'm, I'm reading that right now. And it's, and it's such an enthralling read. There's so many Everest books that I've I've read. There's Into Thin Air, which yeah, is a that, classic by John Krakauer. Yeah, Into Thin Air was the one that got me really excited about reading more mountaineering stories, and that was the first one that I read. No Way Down I've read, which was fantastic. Into the Void? I have, have you... yeah, Into the Void I've read is, is very good. And that's such an inspiring tale. Oh, my gosh. I think that's probably my favorite. And the movie is fantastic, too. I don't know if you've seen that. I like, I really am into climbing documentaries. You know, Meru was, was so good. That came out a couple of years ago. The one about K2 called The Summit. There's a couple of, of, about K2, which I just want to, for, for the record, I have zero aspirations to ever climb that one. <laughs> I do not have a death wish. <laughs> <laughs> that one's out of my league for sure. <laughs> for every person that makes it to the summit, X it's number die trying. One out of three. It's really, really bad. Yeah. At least I think Everest is like one out of 12, but yeah, K2 is, is terrifying. Anything else you'd like to add in closing? Well, I, I will say that I, I hope that I will actually get to come out your way at some point uh, in the near future. And since you're situated right at the base of Shasta, and I've been more seriously considering putting that on the list. So uh, I hope that our paths will actually cross in person and you can sort of be my my Shasta tour guide and meet Loki. Love to. Might oh, be up for climbing be, it again. That would be a person. I mean, my own to, my own trip guide. That would be so awesome. It's a it's a fairly straightforward climb. Um, there's just the red banks, which is the only technical section at all. You do need crampons and an ice axe for the ascent, but there's only one area where you really need the it's, ice axe. It's, it looks like a beautiful climb. You know, I, I go to the PNW uh, maybe once a year, so I'm actually heading back up there in what three weeks, I think. And so we'll see what kind of trouble we can get into when we're up there again. I know it's the dead of winter, but there's still some things to climb. <laughs> this has been Doug Green with another guest on What Really Matters Interviews. You can find links to more information on this and other interviews in the show notes at WhatReallyMattersInterviews.com. For this specific episode, look for the Yali Briggs interview. Stay tuned for more interviews with authors, artists, adventurers, and others with great stories and lessons to share.